Thank you very much. Go ahead and be seated. I want us to continue in prayer. I want to read first from Ephesians chapter 1 as we continue in prayer. The Apostle Paul prays for the Ephesians. And I want to pull from that what I want to focus on this morning in our prayer time. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And here's what he's praying for. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Far above rule and authority, power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave to him his head over all things, the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul, regularly in his prayers, prays for people's spiritual growth. Let's take a few minutes to pray about that. So, Father, thank you for this passage. And we want a spirit of revelation and knowledge of you today, Lord, that you would overwhelm us um, from your Holy Spirit in us and from your word today to know who you are, to know who we are before you, what it means to grow to maturity and to Christ-likeness. So give us that um, understand revelation and enlighten our hearts, Lord, to know all about us we need to know, Lord, as we stand before you, as you've taken us from being sinful, fallen, dead in our sins, to alive in your children, whom you are conforming to the image of your Son. So Father, we pray first and foremost about growing in in our spirituality, grown to maturity in this beautiful faith you have designed. Thank you. As we continue in prayer, I think it's important that we remember praying for spiritual growth is foundational. But God also cares about your needs today. John chapter, excuse me, Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, bring all of our concerns before him. Ephesians or Philippians 4 tells us to lay our cares at his feet. And so let's just take a few moments here to pray for the needs in this body and people in your lives. Just for silently, I want you to pray for what's going on in your life and think of someone else that may need to be lifted up before the Lord today. And then I'll close this in a moment. Father, we thank you for the spiritual blessings you brought to us, but you also tell us to bring our temporal needs before you. And where I know this in this room now, there are illnesses, whether whether it's people in this room or their friends and family, loved ones. We know this Omicron virus is going around still, Lord. We ask for your mercy and your power to eradicate that. We pray for people's hearts and their in their pain and relationships that you would restore relationships, Lord. You'd give them understanding and patience and forgiveness. 
We know some people struggling with their finances, Lord. Give them great wisdom on how to use their money and to honor you with that and to trust you. And that sometimes, Lord, when we have little to nothing, we learn more about you than when we have a lot. So, Father, all our needs we lay before you, that we know you care about us, that you talk about comparing the, the flowers of the field and the birds of the sky, how you take care of them, and you'll take care of us. Give us the faith to trust you. We love you, in Christ's name. I want to read to you, there's another prayer in Paul, in Paul, Ephesians chapter 3, and this is how he ends the prayer. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Jesus Christ through all generations, forever and ever, and everybody said? So, thank you, Father. Guide us in your word today. Amen. I just sense we needed to do that this morning. We're back in the Gospel of John. We took a break at Thanksgiving, and now we're back in. So it's been six weeks out. We're in chapter six. And from here on out, what I'm going to do is I'm going to focus in on from, from the next, from chapter six up until what's called the Passion Week, the week Jesus is arrested. Um, we're going to focus on the I am sayings of Jesus. We've already seen one where he says, I, I am living water in John chapter 4. We also learn that Jesus was the, the, the source of new birth in John chapter 3, where he says, you must be born again. Today, we're going to see that Jesus, he says, I am the bread of life. And we have a lot more I am sayings in John that we'll focus on those as we work our way up to that Passion Week. And this will take us all the way up to Resurrection Day, Easter. If you don't have a Bible, one like one, the ushers have Bibles. If you want to raise your hand, they'll bring you one. If you don't own a Bible, please keep it. So specifically, where are we going today? Jesus says he's the bread of life. And, and John, in this chapter, he's already done it, but now he, he's starting to build the concept that Jesus is the only way to salvation. So we're going to look at how that, that builds today as he talks about the fact that he is the bread of life. We have a difficult passage we're going to look at, a passage that, that is, is, his own disciples had trouble with and stopped following him, where Jesus says, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood or you have no part of me. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. And it's one of those statements you go, what? What in the world is he talking about? And the church has interpreted that quite differently over the thousand, 2,000 years. We'll talk about that. So that's what we're going to look at today. Jesus is in the region of the Sea of Galilee. Sea of Galilee is 650 feet below sea level. And the mountains around it run from 2,000 to 4,000 feet above sea level. So, so it's in this broad plain that the mountains go up. The Sea of Galilee, surprisingly, or not surprisingly, is shaped just like Lake Tahoe. It's about two-thirds the size of Lake Tahoe. And this story takes place pretty much on the North Shore. In fact, Jesus, most of Jesus' teaching is in Capernaum, which would be King's Beach. <laughs> so... Um, I know, the pride in this place. <laughs> Galilee, the whole region, was what was known as a, a peasant agrarian society, primarily farmers and fishermen. We, you know, today we would call it the lower income bracket, just hardworking people trying to eke out a living. It's springtime, and Passover is quickly approaching. 
Very important to understand Passover. If you're new to Christianity, I want to explain Passover. If you've been a Christian a while, you understand. The Old Testament festival of Passover celebrates God delivering his people, Israel, out of Egypt into the promised land. And the Passover is a meal that they would eat a lamb that was slain and cooked and unleavened bread. And they were to eat it and they were to take the blood from the lamb and put it on the doorpost of the house they were in. They had to put the blood on the doorpost. And when the angel of death came through Egypt, he killed every firstborn in every house, except for the houses that had the blood on it. And Israel celebrated this meal every year for thousands of years, the Passover meal, where God passed over the houses of Israel when he brought judgment. Well, it is that meal that Jesus celebrates the night before he's killed and turns that Passover into what we call the Lord's Supper, communion, Eucharist, different, different words we use for it. And today we are taking communion. And so this time of year being the Passover, Jesus now uses that as an opportunity to teach about who he is. I am the bread of life. And he's going to compare John. John takes this story of Jesus. And this is very important. So, so um, listen carefully. John takes this story of Jesus where he feeds the 5,000, calls himself the bread of life. He also walks on water when there's a storm. And he's doing all this to compare himself to Moses. Because what did Moses do with bread? Hello. When they're in the wilderness, manna comes down from heaven. And, and Moses is an instrument of that. What does Moses do with the Red Sea? He parts it. So Jesus feeds the 5,000, brings them bread. Then he, after that, he walks on the water. So what we're seeing here is John presenting these stories of Jesus in a way that reflects the, the listener will think, oh, this reminds me of Moses. And listen to what one scholar, Gary Burge, said. These parallels offer some intriguing conclusions. This Passover story of Jesus makes direct connections with prominent Old Testament themes that tumble over one another in rapid succession. They provide a growing impression that in some fashion, the hero of Passover, Moses, has now been superseded by Jesus, who not only provides bread from heaven, but is himself the bread of life. So this is exciting. This week, you know, when you, when you think you know a story, and so you go to ready, ready to teach it, and you start reading, you go, oh, that's interesting. That, that sounds familiar. So you pull out some of your commentaries and you, you know, and you start comparing, cross-referencing. All of a sudden, this world opens up that, that I hadn't seen before in the life of Jesus in John chapter 6, how he's purposely displaying himself as a fulfillment of all Moses' ministry as the prophet who is to come. So I've set that up. Let's look at the, the miracle of the feet of the 5,000. John chapter 6 is 71 verses long. We're going to read many of them today. I can't explain them all. Next week, we're going to come back to them and do a second sermon. So, but let's just kind of jump into John chapter 6 and then um, focus on the areas that I want to today. Start John chapter 6, 1 to 15. After this, 
Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up to the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. So remember, Sea of Galilee is 650 feet below sea level. He goes across the lake, whether it's to the west or east side, scholars and geography debate. We don't need to worry about that. Let's just presume he's over there, over by um, Sand Harbor, okay? And he goes up in the mountains, goes up in the mountains. Now the Passover, the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. And lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he knew him, himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. So how much is 200 denarii? If you have, if you have translations open that are different, what, what does it say? Shillings, that, that's real clear, isn't it? Denarii and shillings. A denarii was a day's wage for a laborer. So, so 200 denarii would be about eight months' wage today. So if you're, if you're someone in the working trades, eight months of your wage, Philip is saying, what would that be today? Let's say $30,000, $40,000. We haven't got $30,000, $40,000 to feed all these people. What are we going to do? So Jesus is setting him up. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. What are they for so many? And here's the opportunity for the miracle. And five barley loaves and two fish. Barley was the grain that was most accessible by poor people. And in the Old Testament, there's a story of this boy eating three barley loaves. Three barley loaves was his lunch. So this boy has five barley loaves and two fish. Pretty much he's just a healthy growing boy and this is his lunch. And Jesus takes that and does an amazing miracle. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the man sat down, the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Understand, the men sat down. In Greek, that's a specific word for males. It's not counting the amount of women and children there. They're just counting the number of men. So if we have men with, with their spouses and their children, who knows how many we have? 10,000, could be more, we don't know. Jesus then took the loaves and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. You see, Moses said in Deuteronomy 18, there's a prophet like me coming after me. And you must listen to him. Because if you don't listen to him, you're out showing that this prophet to come was greater than Moses. And interesting, now we, we have this comparison. It's kind of subtle. But if, if the comparison in a moment is going to be about manna, when manna came down, they were to collect just what they needed. And what happened if they collected more than they needed? It rotted. 
They were supposed to collect just what they needed. The excess rotted. Well, Jesus feeds them and says, go collect the excess. From five barley loaves, about that much, he collects 12 baskets full, showing the abundance of Jesus as the bread of life. And there's no mention here of this bread rotting. So it's just these little subtle indications someone greater than Moses is among us. This must be that prophet that Moses told us about. In verse 15, perceiving then that they were about to take him, come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now we read this, this story, feeding the 5,000, is in all four Gospels. We read in other Gospels that, that Jesus went up to the mountain to pray. And he told his disciples, go across the sea. Get in the boat and go across the sea. I'll join you later. So that's, that's what we have. But let me, um, let me set that up. So I, I set that up. The real part is the second half of the chapter. I want to set up the fact that Jesus fed them. And there's this comparison to Moses. So you with me? Okay, a few of you. John 6, 16 to 24 is the story of Jesus walking on the water. I, I want to summarize this for you. Jesus tells his disciples to go to the other side of the lake, and Jesus goes up on the mountain to pray. The wind comes up, and the disciples are struggling. So imagine now, because Lake Tahoe is, I believe, 12 by 22 miles. Is that correct, you geography people? Yeah. Two-thirds of that. So it's about, so the Lake of Galilee, Galilee I believe, is, is like um, 12 by 8 miles. And so now they're rowing across. And every afternoon, a wind would come up from the west and blow across the Sea of Galilee and create trouble, create big waves. And so they're rowing against this. And the other, the other stories tell this, and they're getting nowhere. They're getting nowhere. And all of a sudden, they see a figure walking on the water. And it's Jesus coming to them. And they're afraid. They're freaking out. They're afraid. And Jesus, as he gets close... He says, it is I, do not be afraid. Now, if you read Greek, he says there, ego eimi, which is two Greek words, I am. And who is the I am of scripture? It's God's name given to Moses at the burning bush. So our English puts it as a statement, it is I, it is me. But the Greek is ego eimi. And immediately he gets in the boat and the storm stops. Then it says immediately they were at the other side. They reached their destination. So some miracles going on here of, of their struggle and their toil and they could get nowhere, but once Jesus is in the boat, it's accomplished. Ego eimi, it is I, I am. In the days ahead, see, these I am sayings, I am the bread of life, I am the living water, I am the good shepherd. I'm the light of the world. All of them are ego eimi. And we're going to see this build to where Jesus claims to be Yahweh in John chapter 8, which we'll talk about in the next couple of weeks. So, now, the crowd, I call it the full belly crowd, because it said they had their fill. The full belly crowd comes out in the morning, and Jesus isn't there. The boats are gone, so what do they do? They get in their boats and go across the lake, they end up in Capernaum where Jesus is teaching in the synagogue because they're looking, they're looking for Jesus for a reason. So let's re-engage the story in John chapter 6, 25. And I titled this, What are the Works of God? John 6, 25. 
When they had found Jesus on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So Jesus cuts right through their motive. If, in fact, these people are more lower income, they work in hard deed every day, they just had this phenomenal meal, let's get some more. So Jesus reads right through their motives. Your, your real motive isn't about who I am. It's about what I can do for you. And, and do we not all come to Jesus for what he can do for us? I mean, we, we come to Jesus for forgiveness. But what's most important about our salvation is we've got to remember this. Coming to Jesus isn't simply about what he does for us. It's about getting to know who he is. This is the living God who calls us into a relationship with him. We're going to see in John chapter 17, verse 3, when he says, I give them eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God, talking to his Father, and me, Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. At the heart of Christianity is not what he does for you, but it's a relationship with him. And so Jesus is calling them out. You don't care about me. You just want something. Where was I? Okay, thank you. Verse 27, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to, do the, to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So, the Son of Man will give you food that endures to eternal life. When everyone in the desert ate the manna, what happened to them ultimately? They all died. So we're going to see Jesus makes that direct parallel in a minute. But now here he's saying, the Son of Man will give you food that endures to eternal life. The food I gave you yesterday, the barley loaves and the fish, you're hungry again. I want to give you the food that endures to eternal life. But notice their carrot. I want to give to you. All right, so, so we've got to hang on to that thought. Verse 29, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. Christianity, I'm not going to say it is unique of all world religions because I don't know all world religions, but my understanding of other faith systems in our world is you must achieve your way to God. You must do works, accomplish things to make yourself acceptable to whatever God you're following. This is really permeates all of Western culture's literature. Go back to all the Greek mythologies and legends. There was the hero that had to accomplish feats to get the job done, to win the girl. It's, it's in our movies today. The idea of a passive, I, all I do is believe in Jesus for eternal life, is contrary to how our minds work, how the world works, how, how man-made religions work. Christianity turns it on its head not so with Jesus. Jesus says, you want to do the works of God? Believe in me. So what is belief? What does it mean to believe in Jesus? This passage is going to kind of blow us away here in a bit. Because today I wonder, I wonder, if we have oversimplified belief to 
making a simple profession, saying certain words, to say, okay, it's done, I'm in. And I don't want to minimize the idea of, of praying, calling upon Jesus to save me. We have to use words, you know, whether it's in our minds or out loud. But too often, it's again, Jesus, I need something from you, so I'll say these words, I'll accept you, now give me my eternal life. And what we're going to see here is Jesus, I will give you something to eat that takes you to eternal life. But what does he give him? Himself. It's not something external to Jesus that he gives you. He gives you himself. And that's the point of communion. That's the point of eat my flesh and drink my blood. We have now been united to Jesus. We have a union with him. That our faith puts us in this place where I'm united to him. I'm dwelling in him and he's dwelling in me, he says. I'm getting ahead of myself. So, Jesus says, this is the work of God. Believe in him who he has sent, me. So what's their response? Where am I? Okay. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. This is inconceivable. What did they just experience the day before? An amazing miracle of turning five loaves of bread and two fish to feed possibly 10,000 people. Oh, Jesus, you claim to be, have the words of eternal life. You claim to give me something. Do a sign and prove it. Again, back to human nature. It's, it's we are so slow to believe and trust. So we can, now we get into a strong comparison of Moses and Jesus' ministry. It's not manna that Jesus gives bread. It's Jesus himself that is the true bread. Let's read. Thank you. So let's get, let's get down to... Um, Jesus said to them, verse 32, truly I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is the same thing he said to the woman at the well. Here he's using bread, but there he talked about water. I am the living water. The water I give you, you'll never thirst again. And what does she say? Oh, give that to me. I'm tired of coming to this well. Same thing here. Oh, give us that food. We don't got to ever look for food again. And Jesus is doing a play on our physical needs that I need to eat. I need to drink all the time to stay alive. So he's using what we all understand, our physical needs, but taking it to a spiritual level that there is a water I can drink. John chapter 4, there is a food I can eat, John chapter 6, that causes me to never thirst again and never hunger again. What's the point? If, if world religions are working my way to heaven, I must do more, I must do more. God won't accept me unless I do that. Or I've sinned and now he's going to kick me out until I do more to get accepted again. Can you ever not be hungry in that system? You're always lacking. You need more and more and more. You must do, do, do. But in Christianity, it's Jesus, I'm trusting in you. 
And once I understand who you are, the prayer we pray at the beginning, that the eyes of my heart would be enlightened to know who he is. Once I grasp the true identity of Jesus Christ and put my faith in him, I've been united with him, I can rest. I never have to struggle again to wonder if God has saved me and loves me. It's an incredible truth. Do you feel it? Because often in our culture, we all get up in the morning to go to work. Why? Because we want to earn something. And, and we're supposed to, by the way. Those of you, no, no, I'll leave that out. I'm gonna, no, I was going to get political. Christianity turns that concept on its head that I come to him with nothing and say, I trust you, Jesus. I can't do it. I trust you to save me. And he says, once you genuinely do that, you'll never hunger again wondering if God accepts you. You'll never thirst again for something you don't have because he is sufficient. He's, he fills the all in all. Thirty-six. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Sometimes it doesn't matter what we see, what we hear. There's a stubbornness and unbelief. And we're going to see through John. Remember, the theme of John is that they might believe. Jesus did all these signs that they might believe. Sometimes we see something or hear something, and our eyes are opened. Next week, we're going to learn that it's God who opens our eyes. Other people see the same thing, hear the same thing. They refuse to believe. We'll deal with that next week. But for some in this crowd, they said, eh, not buying it. Now, with that story, Jesus now gets to that pivotal part about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And what that means to how that informs what faith is. Jesus is the bread of life. It's a subtle way of saying Jesus is the only way to God. He says it here. He says it very directly in John 14. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's not new to most of you, I'm sure, that verse. But culturally, what does our world say about that exclusive claim? When you go out and share with Jesus with people, and say, if you want eternal life, you must believe in Jesus. There's no other way. How does our current culture respond to that? It's, it's, that's your truth, not my truth. That, you are arrogant to believe that. That's unfair. What about the people who've never heard before? It's not inclusive. We have to be inclusive in everything. All roads lead to God. That's our culture. We have to bring this message of Jesus is the bread of life. It's only through him that we gain sustenance. It's only through him that we gain life. We have to take this to our world we live in. That's part of the purpose statement of this church. The third section of the purpose statement of this church is we engage a broken world with the hope of the gospel. And that gospel is that Jesus Christ has come to die for you and pay for your sins, and he is the only way to the Father. Put your faith in him. And if we're not living in humility and love, people will reject our words. 
I think more than ever now, we need to learn how we are living our life each day. People are watching. If they know you're a Christian, they're watching you. How you're living your life each day in humility, in love for your neighbor. Then, that's an instrument God will use to open their eyes. But when we come in with any level of overconfidence and arrogance, talking down to people, they're not going to believe a word we say. So, are you trusting in Jesus only? Have you come to him? Whoever comes to me, he says, are you holding on to him and him alone? Now let's look at the bread of life and communion. John chapter 6, verse 40. In this section here, we'll come back to next week. Um, 35 to 40 will be our main text for next week, but I'm just going to drop in here, verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So looks on the Son and believes upon him. There's an experience where I engage Jesus and I trust in him. I look upon the Son and I believe. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. That's next week's message. It is written in the prophets that they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God, meaning Jesus. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes had eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. He's doing a play on words here. He's talking about a physical bread that came down from heaven that people ate and they died. But Jesus will give a spiritual bread in some way that they will eat and never die. So that is that union with him, believing in him accomplishes something that he gives to us, something that, that he equates with a bread, something that sustains you and gives you life and you will never die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So when does he give his flesh for the life of the world? Please stay with me here. Louder. The crucifixion. He gives his flesh, his body, for the life of the world. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? By the way, in the Old Testament, the penalty for cannibalism, death. So this is not easy to hear. Jesus in a synagogue filled with Jewish people, hearing, eat my flesh. So you know their red flags are going up here. You know, if someone came up here and said something really crazy and heretical, I hope you'd stand up and say, what are you talking about? Or if I say something really crazy and heretical, be kind. <laughs> but, but, but my point is, these guys, I'm sure there's rumbling going on. What is he talking about? How can he do this? Don't we know that? They, we know his parents. They live here in our community. Verse 58, I don't know where I stopped, but I'm starting there. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh 
and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. So we, this idea of abiding, Jesus will bring back in John 15. And, and here we have what faith brings about. Faith, trusting in Jesus, brings about this abiding relationship where I abide in him and he abides in me. So we'll pick that back in John 15 when he, he talks about it again. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will have, live because of me. And this is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this stark saying that says, eat my flesh, drink my blood? He's saying this in front of an audience that this is horrible. It's horrible to us. The concept of cannibalism, there's not much more disgusting and horrific than that. Would you agree? But Jesus is using this, this horrific image to say, unless you do it, there's no life in you. So we back up. He said, what's the work of God? To believe upon Jesus. Then he adds this horrific task. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. We must figure out the relationship of believing in Christ and consuming Christ, of which communion is the traditional thing that Jesus sets up for us to do. So what's the relationship? I want to step into that, and please bear with me. This is where we get kind of academic for a few minutes. Um, about how the church has viewed communion for, for thousands of years, different views. The first one is called, and it'll be on the board up here, transubstantiation. If you have a Catholic background, this is the transubstantiation is the Catholic view of communion. And that is that in a very real way, when the priest blesses the bread, and, and that may not be the right terminology, but, but there is a change that happens, though it, looks and smells like bread and wine, it's actually really the body and blood of Jesus. So it, it takes Jesus' words here literal. You must eat my flesh and drink my blood. And so every time in, in the, the Catholic Church for centuries, starting in the high Middle Ages to the late Middle Ages, this was developed, that transubstantiation, the substance changed. It looks like bread, it looks like wine, but in reality, it's true flesh and true blood. Jesus, it's called a bloodless sacrifice. Jesus dies again for you. That's the Roman Catholic view. Well, in the course of time, Martin Luther came along and struggled with some Catholic doctrines that he, he, he was arguing against. One was called um, indulgences. And when he nailed his 95 theses on the Wittenberg door, given his, his disagreements with that, it started a firestorm where the Catholic Church said, dude, come back or you're out. And he said, I can't come back to that. So he was out. And thus unintentionally started the Protestant Church. By the way, what does the word Protestant mean? Protest. He was protesting certain Catholic doctrines. 
he changed the view of, of transubstantiation to consubstantiation. Jesus' body and blood are with the bread and wine. They don't turn into the body and blood of Jesus, but they are with it. Here's what one guy said. For Luther, the supper was to be understood as a real Christological presence of body and blood that is in, with, and under the visible elements of bread and wine. So one, one guy simplifies it. If you pick the bread up, there's Jesus. Now, I'm not assuming, I'm not trying to be a joke. So the bread doesn't become Jesus' body, but Jesus is so intricately there. And in these two views, transubstantiation and consubstantiation, are what's called sacramentalism. We must participate in these to gain the grace of God. See you with me? At the same time as Luther, a man named Zwingli came along and said, nah, Jesus' body is in heaven at the right hand of God. He cannot be here on earth at the same time. As God, he is omniscient, or excuse me, omnipresent everywhere. But his physical body as a human being, is limited to one place. He's with God at the right hand. He can't be in the elements. That doesn't make sense. The elements are a memorial. The elements are this idea of, of Jesus. We celebrate this to remember who he is. And Jesus' stark words here are just supposed to grab us. They're not to be taken literally. They're supposed to grab us to say, this element here, when we eat the bread and drink the wine, reminds us of our only source of salvation is Jesus Christ himself. So it's a memorial to point towards it. But Jesus, in fact, is not present in any physical manner at all, as the Lutherans and Catholics say. So Zwingli was a, rep a representative of the Reformed Church. Then the next generation, Calvin, came along replacing Zwingli, and he upped it a little bit from memorial to what's called the spiritual presence of Jesus. Jesus is truly present in a way that, that is not directly connected to the wine and the bread, but there's a spiritual presence of Jesus that when you participate in this, you get to experience Jesus in a unique way that you wouldn't experience if you did not participate in the bread and the wine. So if I just confused you, I apologize. Um, I'll send you the notes. This church holds to the memorial spiritual presence view. I lean more towards Calvin's view that there's something about communion and baptism that aren't just word pictures. There's a reality taking place that should move me closer to God because he is present with us in these rituals, sacraments, ordinances, whatever you want to call them. It's, it's called an occasion for grace. When we participate in communion, this is an occasion where God pours his grace upon you in a way that he doesn't in other ways. That's why communion is so important to participate in. And baptism is so important to enter into this walk with God. That's done once. Communion is done regularly. So, there's good books on this if you want to see the different views. I'm not here to trash any of those different views. I believe, just as we are spiritually united with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus is also spiritually present in a way that feeds us when we take communion. In a way that, that dare I say, you aren't fed if you don't participate. I want to make sure we keep our salvation by faith alone, trusting in him, and not add, trust in him and do this, do that, say this, say that. But once we are in, we are united with Christ, and we have this relationship with him that is pictured as this stark thing as I feed upon him, and he nourishes me with life. 
always things like this. There's always, yeah, but, Tony. What about this? What about that? And guess what? This is the beauty. I always say this to you. I know I'm long overdue. Don't quit looking at your watches. God gave you a Bible, gave you a brain, gave you the Holy Spirit, and gave you the people of God. Don't just walk away and say, hmm, I wonder what's true. Pursue it. Pursue it. Grow closer as we pray at the beginning. Pray for a knowledge, of spirit of wisdom and knowledge of our Savior as you grow closer to him because he is life. He just doesn't give you life. He is life. So the disciples themselves struggled with this. Verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? At that moment, I, I bet this, I'm, I'm reading between the lines, I could be wrong. Other people said, you know what, he's whacked. I'm not following this Jesus anymore. He just told us to, to commit can, cannibalism. So Jesus looks at the 12, do you want to go away too? My guess is they were thinking, yeah. <laughs> but Simon Peter, who often answers Jesus' questions for everybody else, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So when we don't understand something, what do we do? We run, we, we run to the Holy One of God. And we hold on to him. That's what trust is. That's what faith is. Jesus, I don't understand it. I'm struggling with this. But I'm trusting you. We're going to participate in communion now. And often we read 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul says, quoting the Gospel of Luke, on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, broke it, and gave thanks. And it's a text, but we don't read the verses after that. So I'm going to read those to you before you come up and participate. We'll read these, then we'll pray, and I want you to come forward. Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 11:27. the seriousness of what we enter into. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. I want you to understand that Roman Catholics and Lutherans take that very serious more than we Bible Church, Baptist, Pentecostal churches take. We take the memorial view, and we don't always take it as serious as it should be taken. The Roman Catholic and, and Lutheran view take it very serious because they really believe in some way that's the body and blood. So we need to, if we don't believe that, up our ante and realize this memorial is still utterly important how we approach the table, that we examine ourselves first. Verse 28, but a person must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat the bread and drink of the cup. For the one who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not properly recognize the body. That could be referring to your body in which you drive, it drives you to sin, or it could be referring to the body of Christ. Because earlier in the passage, these people were having, getting drunk at communion, eating all the food and drinking all the wine, and ignoring the rest of the body of Christ. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number are asleep. What does Paul mean when he says asleep? Dead. God brought the ultimate discipline to Christians because they were abusing the Lord's Supper. We need to take this serious. 
But if we judge ourselves rightly, we will not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So as you come forward to grab the bread and the cup, I want you to go back to your seat with it and just meditate and talk to the Lord. Um, if, if there's a life of sin you've been living, now's the time to repent of it. To come to him as you hold that bread and cup in your hand. You say, Lord, my life has not represented who you saved me to be. You saved me by trusting in your son, and he's changed my life, but I've chosen selfishness. At that moment, then, God, I give it back to you. Forgive me. And then you participate with us. But don't have any kind of flippant attitude of, doesn't matter what I do, I'm forgiven. According to this passage, that's not a healthy thing to do. So this is about a relationship we have with the living God that is brought about through faith, that he says, please Understand the seriousness of this beautiful meal I've given you to remember me. So, Father, as we prepare our hearts, Lord, speak to us. Confirm in us um, how essential it is to follow your Son and believe in him alone. Confirm in us, Lord, that it is because of him that we are saved, not we ourselves. Give us a, a deep love and respect for what these elements represent, and that is our Savior's suffering on the cross, the, his brutal murder, so that we could be made alive. And then we'll participate together, Lord, hopefully in your honor. Thank you, in Christ's name.